So, uh, a lovely story that was, don't you think? Uh, it's really kind of heartwarming, faith-building, inspiring story. Now, I don't know if you've um, heard that story before. Um, I suspect a lot of you have. But um, I think that this story is totally mental. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, this is one of those stories that if it was up to me, um, I, and I could choose what stories got into the Bible, um, I'd probably leave this one out. Because, I mean, I'm quite happy with the nice loving God of the New Testament that forgives the sins of the world. But this is a bit weird, isn't it? It's a little bit strange. Uh, Over the slides up, please. I'd like to introduce you to John. This is John. Uh, John is, is a normal bloke. Uh, he knows a little bit about Christianity. A couple of his friends go along to church on a Sunday. Um, but uh, he's, he's not really that bothered. Um, he hasn't really looked into it in detail. Uh, he's probably a little bit like uh, many of our friends that wouldn't call themselves Christians. Now, John is away on a business trip for the weekend. Uh, he's got some time to kill in his hotel room before his conference. And then uh, he's going through uh, the drawers like you do in the hotel, stealing the free shampoo. Um, and he stumbles across uh, this book, Gideon's Holy Bible. Uh, and he... He's pretty bored, to be honest. He's got nothing better to do. So out of, out of boredom, rather than anything else, uh, he decides, I'm going to see what all the fuss is about. Uh, I'm going to have a look inside this Gideon's Holy Bible. And like any normal person, uh, John decides to read the book from the beginning, because that's where you read books from. So, he opens it up. Genesis chapter 1. God creates the world. Kind of interesting, not really worth taking that seriously. I mean, I know a lot about science. It's quite interesting, but... Anyway, Genesis chapter 5. Noah. He's heard this one at Sunday school. Now, this is a cracking story. Solid plot. Apparently, they're making a film out of it with Russell Crowe. That's a true story. Genesis chapter 12. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Yeah, this is a good story, isn't it? We all know about good old Father Abraham. God promises to make Abraham a great nation. He promises that he's going to bless the entire world through the descendants of Abraham. Genesis chapter 15. This is the uh, dramatic low point in the plot, but you you kind of feel like... um, could get, it's going to get better. If it's anything like most films that John's seen, it's going to get better from here on in. Abraham is, is pretty annoyed because God's promised that he's going he's to bless his entire descendants, yet um, his wife is barren. She's not having any children. So he doesn't really know um, how God's promise is going to be fulfilled. Genesis chapter 16. Didn't know this bit was in the Bible. This is interesting. Abraham sleeps with his slave... Lad, and uh, he has a baby with her instead. Not really what God had in mind, but I'm sure that um, it's probably going to be okay. Genesis chapter 21. Turns out God was right after all. Abraham and his pretty ancient wife have a baby. Apparently, he's 100 years old. You can't really believe that people actually believe in this stuff, can you? Turns out God was faithful to his promises after all. Now, 
John gets to Genesis 22. God tells Abraham to kill his one and only son, Isaac. His son that has been promised to be the heir of his entire blessing. The son that he's waited for for years and years and years. And God says, kill him. And Abraham says, yeah, sure. I'll kill, I'll kill my son, whatever you say. And then right at the last minute, he's just about to do it. And God says, I was just, just kidding you, mate. You don't, you don't really have to do it. Uh, you don't have to do it, honestly. And now, John sits down and he thinks to himself, who is this God? Who is this God that Christians follow? What kind of God asks someone to kill the only thing they love and then withdraw it at the last minute? Can you imagine for a second being John? Being someone that has never opened the Bible before. And then here this is, the great loving God of Christianity. Let's not beat around the bush. This story is horrible. I was going to say then, let's not beat around the burning bush. But then I decided to omit it and then bring it back in. Uh, Richard Dawkins said this about this passage. A modern moralist cannot help but wonder how a child could ever recover from such psychological trauma. By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defence. I was only obeying orders. And part of me agrees with Richard Dawkins here. I, don't think, I didn't think I'd ever say that from the front of church. And part of me shares John's disgust at this story when he reads this passage for the first time. Who is this God? Why does he play with humanity like this? Well, he's looking for some answers. So, uh, dusted off uh, the old life application Bible from the shelf, which I've not used in a while, and turned to Genesis chapter 22. And, um, this is what the Life Application Bible says we should get from this passage. Just as fire refines ore to extract precious metals, God refines us through difficult circumstances. When we are tested, we can complain, or we can try and see how God is stretching us to develop our character. And this is the message that um, I've heard preached a million times from this passage. It's the message that um, we tell our kids at Sunday school. Obey orders. Trust in God's commands. If God tells you to kill, do it. I'm not saying that uh, this isn't true. I'm not saying that we shouldn't trust God. But when I read this passage, if I'm honest, the last thing that I want to do is trust this kind of God. Immanuel Kant, the, the famous philosopher, said the following. Abraham should have replied to this supposedly divine voice. Got a manual pad, one second. There he is. <laughs> Abraham should have replied to this supposedly divine voice that I ought not to kill my good son is quite certain, but that you, this apparition of God, of that I am not certain, and never can be, not even if this voice rings down to me from heaven. Abraham is pictured as a great knight of faith. 
throughout the world. He's the father of modern religion. And the New Testament describes Abraham's incredible faith. But sometimes we seem easy to forget that he was all ready to put a knife to his son's throat. And we can pretend that we knew what was going to happen. We can pretend that, um, that Abraham knew what was happening all along. That he knew that God would really not go through with it. That he would withdraw his command. It seems to me that hindsight is quite a beautiful thing here. And um, if you read the passage, it certainly doesn't seem that he knew necessarily what, what was going to happen. He was pretty eager to obey God's commands. He had the knife out, it says in verse 10, ready to slay his son. Now, just imagine, if you can, next week when Paul Millard, this wonderful man, <laughs> courtesy of Facebook, uh, uh, just imagine next week when Paul Millard comes up to preach to us from Genesis um, he stands up here and he says guys I know this is a little bit crazy right I know this is going to sound a little bit weird um, but I really feel like God has been speaking to me I mean it's the, I'm the, this is the surest I've ever been that God is speaking to me um, I really think that he wants me to kill my daughters in fact, um, I've started building an altar in my back garden. Um, what are you doing next Thursday? Do you want to come around and help? Can you imagine? Can you actually imagine if he said that? I think the first thing I would do is call the police, and then probably social services. We don't really take this story very seriously, do we? Is it, it's just an outdated relic from an immoral culture. It's just... An outdated religious story, isn't it? Do we really believe that God is in the process of refining our characters in this way? The book of Genesis, as we've been hearing about in the last few weeks at G2, is a book of beginnings. And it's the beginning of God's relationship with humanity, with his people. He creates them, he sees them fall... Uh, he tries to rescue them. He promises incredible things to them. And I like to think this one a little bit like um, the first few dates in a relationship. The first couple of dates, um, they're pretty tame, really. I mean, you, you save the best stories for the first couple of dates. You tell them that you're a passionate person, you uh, volunteer four nights a week, that, you, uh, that you're a good cook, you're very kind... You know, you, you, you get all the best qualities out on the first date. The second date, maybe you have a, some, a few more weird facts. Maybe you, you're not very tame, you like to wear your underpants for more than one day at a time. You've got a strange mole on the inside of your thigh. You know, those sort of things, second date material. Now, um, so this story is pretty early in God's relationship with humanity. In the grand scheme of things, Abraham's relationship... Um, to me, it looks like a third, potentially fourth date. And if I'm honest, it feels a little bit like he's played the crazy card a little bit too early. I mean, imagine on the third date, you rock up, and um, she tells you that, um, she, that, hi, my name's Miriam, sorry, you just asked. <laughs> hi, I'm Miriam, and then um, actually, I share my house with 27 cats. Or um, maybe um, she tells you, Actually, um, I don't normally tell people this, but actually I've got a restraining order from Justin Bieber. <laughs> or maybe, even weirder, she tells you, 
I, I once uh, dated Paul Millard. <laughs> Sorry. That's a nobler. So up until now, uh, Miriam, for example, she seemed, um, she seemed pretty normal. Uh, but this, this is a bit weird. What does it tell us about God's character that he puts Abraham through such an ordeal right here at the start of his relationship with humanity? What is God revealing about himself through this encounter with Abraham? Is it that I can do whatever I like and you will obey me? Is it if I say jump, jump? If I say kill, kill? The problem, I think, with this story is that it's difficult, it's very difficult to remove it and apply it to our own culture. I think John struggles to hear how it would have first been heard. So does Emmanuel Kant, so does Richard Dawkins, and probably so do we. Because from a modern perspective, this story is horrific. There's no avoiding that. And I'm pretty confident that I'm not standing here preaching heresy um, when I say that if you think God wants you to kill one of your children, um, you're wrong. You're probably wrong. There might be a whole lot of theological reasons why this isn't the case anymore, but it's, not, it's just not true that God would command this from us. I think if we really get to the bottom of this story, this doesn't show a picture of a God who is crazy, child-abusing, a power-mad maniac. But I think a God who is progressive, a God who pushes the boundaries of what we expect, a God who provides for his people. You see, this is not just a text that we can pick up in 2013 and it have the utmost relevance to us. This text is three and a half thousand years old. God has consistently moved through human history, through human cultures. And he's still doing that now. And this book of Genesis was written to God's people in the time. Traditionally, it was thought to have been written by Moses. And we know that it's a very early Jewish text that was written to tell God's chosen people all about their history and their heritage. And it reveals to them not only their own culture and history, where they've come from, but also something about this God that they follow. And a consistent theme through this book of Genesis that we've been seeing again and again is that God is a God that provides for his people. And this, you get the impression, this is what the writer of this passage wants us to get out of Genesis chapter 2. That God is a God who provides for his people. He is a God who promises to be faithful. And he is a God that is faithful throughout. And historians have told us that um, child sacrifice um, wasn't an uncommon thing to happen in Abraham's time. It was a normal thing for religion to demand things like these from us. Josephus, the Jewish historian, for example, says that um, child sacrifice was widely practiced in Egypt and nearby countries in Abraham's time. And if this is true, it makes a huge difference to how we read Abraham's response when he says, yes, God, whatever you say, God, if you want my son, take it. The norm of the time is that the gods demand everything you have. You must provide a sacrifice. You must appease the angry gods, the angry forces that are around us. 
If your God asks for a son, you are in your son. That's just how it works. Gods are avenged by violence and sacrifice. So when God says to Abraham, kill me a son, Abraham's response is, well, that's just what the gods expect. That is what the gods demand. But what does God reply to Abraham? God replies, every other god demands your son. Every other god demands that which is most precious of you. Every other god says, you must provide a sacrifice to appease me. But the God of Israel says, I will provide. This story, I think, reveals as much about who God isn't as about who God is. If we stop this story at the point when Abraham is about to kill, when so many, where so many philosophers and critics have been tempted to stop this story, we miss the point. The storyteller, whoever it is that tells a story, seems to be saying to me that human beings have this fundamental attitude of what do I have to do to satisfy God? But this story doesn't end only with a God who blesses, but with a God who provides. A story of a God who is a provider would have been an absolutely revolutionary idea in human history. No one had ever seen a God quite like this. So when we approach the story of a barbaric God that demands children in sacrifice, it's difficult not to read it through modern eyes, isn't it? But we have to remember that this is a God that works through history, not in isolated ways. And if you flick a few hundred pages later in your Bible, and uh, more than a few thousand years later, you find this same God is moving in a revolutionary way in his interaction with humanity. And he's a God that is still trying to provide for his people. But still you find that the attitude of the human heart at the time of Jesus is, what do I need to do to appease God? The Jewish temple system was something that had been established to gain access to God. It, had been, it was a God-given gift to sort out the relationship with God. But like so many things, it had been abused in the hands of people with power and money. And naturally, people bought into it, because I think in our hearts, we have this thing we need to provide. We need to impress God. And in marches this young rabbi, called Jesus. John chapter 2 tells us that Jesus walks into the temple with a whip of cords and he goes wild. He starts pushing over tables, he drives people out, he drives animals out. Who is this man? What on earth is he doing? And then Jesus stands at the front of all these people and he says destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, um, Captain Obvious in the corner turns around and says, well, this temple took years to build. You'll never do it again in three days. <laughs> but he misses the point here, doesn't he? Jesus isn't talking about a physical temple. In turning over the tables of the temple, Jesus is saying, you do not provide. You cannot provide. Because it is God who provides. 
There is a new day coming. There is a new way of living. And the new temple was destroyed. There's Jesus. The new temple was destroyed. The coming of the kingdom of God was nailed to a cross. It was beaten, battered, humiliated. And like the story of Abraham and Isaac, we fought all along that we could appease God, that we could provide. We think of God as an angry warlord in the sky that demands and craves our sacrifice. But again, God provides. God says, kill the lamb instead. And Jesus was right, wasn't he? In three days, the temple was rebuilt. He was resurrected, and with it, a whole new way of living. So let me ask you, uh, what are you doing here today? Why do you come to church? Why bother calling yourself a Christian? Is this just a book of outdated stories? Do we just jump through hoops? Do we just come to church, strive to be good? Do we just want to provide it all for ourselves? Who are we trying to impress? Because I think, if we're honest, the fundamental attitude of the human heart is still, as it, as it always has been, how can I provide? How can I appease an angry God? What are we going to do? We might not kill our sons on altars, but we still strive with everything we have to please God. But do we just follow a God who demands our religious Obedience, Or is this the same revolutionary God, the same revolutionary God that always was, that always is and always will be? A God that says every other God demands your sacrifices. But I provide. So what are the gods of our time? Well, I would suggest that um, the gods of our time are quite different. Uh, the individual, success, power, money, fame... Reputation, relationships, these things demand our sacrifice. They demand our time, our energy. And isn't it so easy to make these things into idols in our lives? It's so easy to worship these things instead of God. Even if we don't do it explicitly, do we not do it in our priorities, where we spend our time, where we spend our money? Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, says this. Do not then worry, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do you know what? I think that is as radical a statement as has ever been. And I think it is one that we still haven't grasped in our culture. We're going to finish in a minute, but let me just ask you, who is the God that you worship? We worship a God who provides for his people. Do not worship a God who demands child sacrifice, who demands dogmatic religious obedience. I believe that God desires and has always desired a free, wholehearted relationship with him. Yes, he wants us to depend on him, to adore him, to worship him. But more than anything, 
He wants your hearts. He doesn't need you to prove anything to him. He doesn't need you to provide anything because he has provided. Like the first century Jews who expected God to provide for the Jewish people through the temple, God provided a lamb instead. Like Abraham that thought that he needed to provide for his God through his own son, God provided the lamb instead. But our hearts are so easily distracted. It's so easy to resort to this worshipping of other gods. It's so easy to slip back into trying to please God, into trying to prove ourselves. And so we're just going to take a little bit of time to reflect now on this. And then there are some little post-it notes around. I think they're all on the end of the chairs. Uh, But what we're going to do now, the band are going to come up. um, But what I'd like you to do is to, on this note, to write something that, um, that you often find distracts you from God. Something that you make an idol of. What is it that um, you're worrying about? For me, um, I know that um, I had some quite bad news about my future this week. And it's quite easy to slip back into thinking that um, my identity lies in this. I'm useless, wasteful, good, good to nobody. But I think that um, this attitude comes out of my need to provide for myself. My need to be a success. To have reputation. And so it's, it's really easy to make something like that into an idol. But um, in, in bringing it up and placing it on this uh, makeshift um, altar, um, we, we're going to say to God that we recognise that it is you that provides in our life. That um, all of these things are nothing compared to you. And it is you that we worship. So if you're comfortable with it, um, if you could write something on a piece of paper that you want to say and you want to pin down on this altar, and then we're going to worship together and declare to God that it is him that provides for us. I'm just going to pray. Father God, um, I just thank you for your overwhelming provision for your people. Father, I just thank you for your goodness and your love. And I thank you that... Uh, that you provided in the form of Jesus, that you provided for us, that there is nothing that we could do to make ourselves right with you, but that you have provided. And this afternoon, we want to declare to you uh, that, that we will worship you with our hearts.